This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This week, we have episode 312 entitled, Is the Didache Trinitarian? Yes, we started last week by looking at the earliest Christian document that is not written by a New Testament author, and this week we'll look at another early Christian document that's not written by a New Testament author, and the purpose of these is to see what the earliest Christians believed about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Do we actually have evidence that the earliest readers of the New Testament, or at least the New Testament books that they had access to, were believers in a triune God? Did they believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit consisted of a single being, the one God, and that the Father, Son, and Spirit were co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential. This is not what Clement of Rome believed and taught in First Clement. So this week's episode will examine the document called the Didache, which is just the Greek term meaning the teaching. And the Didache is a late 1st century, but probably an early 2nd century Christian document that was aimed at encouraging discipleship based upon the teachings of Jesus Christ, namely the teachings from the Gospel of Matthew, but there's also evidence that this writer was drawing from the letters of Paul. So, was the author of the Didache an early Trinitarian, teaching that the only true God was actually three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential? What did the author of the Didache believe about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the Didache's understanding of God. So we're just going to be looking at all the references to God in the Didache, And I have access to the Greek text, so I'm able to do some translating myself and to recall the Greek when it is needed. So I'm not relying on an English translation. I'm quite capable of translating the Greek myself. And we'll look at all the things that are said about God in this late 1st century, perhaps early 2nd century Christian document. So the beginning of the Didache talks about the great commandment, the great commandment that Jesus talked about. And this great commandment, interestingly enough, seems to further define God as the one person who is the creator. So you'll recognize the great commandment in this. So in chapter 1, verse 2, these are all references in the Didache, it says, This then is the path of life. First, Love the God who made you, and second, your neighbor as yourself. That's Didache chapter 1, verse 2. So we can see there, of course, the great commandment of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. But this God is described as the God 
who made you. And in the Greek text, it indicates that the God who made you is a single person. Only one person defines the one God, and the maker, the creator, is defined as a single person. So in Greek, it is ton theon, ton te santa se, the God, the one who made you. So we can learn a lot about God based on how the author defines God here. In chapter 1, verse 5, the Didachist, and that's the technical term for the writer of the Didache, or the compiler of all these things, he's called the Didachist. He says that for the Father wants everyone to be given something from the gracious gifts he himself provides. That's chapter 1, verse 5. So, a few verses earlier, he says, God is the one who made you, and you're supposed to love this God. And then we can see a few verses later that this God is described as the Father who gives gracious gifts to everyone. A little bit later in chapter 3, verse 10, the readers are commanded to welcome whatever happens to you as good, knowing that nothing occurs apart from God. God, there, of course, is the one that does good things. And we can see echoes from the Sermon on the Mount in this particular passage. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, It is your Father in heaven who does these good things, and he is the one who is good. But in the Didache, the Father is just described as God. In chapter 4, verse 9, where there is discussion on teaching children, it says that from their youth teach them the reverential fear of God. Chapter 4, verse 9. And this God, of course, is not just a name for the Creator. It is the God in Greek, tone, theon. Teach the youth the reverential fear of the God, the one God that everyone knows. Now, we get to chapter 9, we have some very, very interesting data. I think the most interesting data in the Didache because it talks about the Lord's Supper. It's specifically described as the Eucharist, so it's the giving of thanks. And it describes how that is supposed to function with the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. And it's described in some very serious detail. So, in chapter 9, it begins by saying, And with respect to the Eucharist, you shall give thanks as follows. First, with respect to the cup, we give you thanks, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your child, which you made known to us through Jesus, your child. That's chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. So notice here in the Eucharist, this is the Lord's Supper. This is the ceremonial giving of thanks meal. And in this, the giving of thanks is given to the Father only. They're not giving thanks to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the blessing of the cup is given in thanks to the Father on behalf of 
the holy vine of David, and that person is described as the father's child, your child. And then it's further described as Jesus, your child. So Jesus is basically the child of the father. In the very next verse, the Didacus describes how readers are supposed to partake of the bread in the Eucharist. And it says, And with respect to the fragment of bread, we give you thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge that you made known to us through Jesus, your child. Chapter 9, verse 3. Again, the giving of thanks is given only to the Father, and it's done through Jesus, the child of the Father. So it's not just that there's a father and there's a son. The son is the child of the Father, making Jesus, of course, the Son of God. God, of course, being the Father alone. We move to chapter 10. We have more giving of thanks. And in chapter 10, it says, We give you thanks, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you have made reside in our hearts, and for knowledge, faith, and immortality that you have made known to us through Jesus, your child. That's chapter 10, verse 2. Again, the giving of thanks is only given to the Father, and he is the one who has offered knowledge, faith, and immortality. He has made these things known to us through the agency of Jesus. But again, Jesus is described as the child of the Father, making Jesus the Son of the Father. In the very next verse, the Holy Father is described with a title of God. It says, You, O Master Almighty, created all things for the sake of your name, and you gave food and drink to humans for refreshment, that they may give you thanks, and you graciously provided with spiritual food and drink and eternal life through your child. That's chapter 10, verse 3. So we have a single person, second person singular, you, described as the Master Almighty. Almighty, of course, is singular, and of course the person addressed is one single person, not multiple persons, not two persons, not three persons. Only one person is the Master Almighty, and in the context, that person is the Holy Father. And this person is the one who created all things. Only one person created all things, and that is the Father. And the Father, as we've seen, has provided spiritual food and drink and eternal life through his child. Jesus is the child of the creator of all things. So that seems pretty clear that for the Didachist, God, the creator, the Almighty, is the Father alone. And Jesus is the son or the child of this Father. Let's move to point number two, the Didache's understanding of Jesus. Now, as you've seen, we've already talked a lot about Jesus. Jesus is the Son of the Father. He is the Son of the Creator. But there's still a few more passages that talk about Jesus. What's interesting is that most of the time, 
Jesus is described in the Didache with the title, The Lord, or Our Lord, while God regularly is being described as Ophaios, the God. Now, there'll be some times in which the Didachist will quote from what we would call the Old Testament to where God is being described as the Lord there, but most of the time it's pretty clear that the Lord being referenced is the Lord Jesus, to where the Lord is just a title, the Master Jesus. So in the opening title of the entire work, before we get to chapter 1, verse 1, the title that's given in our Greek manuscript of the Didache says, The Teaching of the Lord Through the Twelve Apostles to the Nations. And we can see that most of the Didache is drawn directly from the teachings of Jesus. Therefore, when it says the teaching of the Lord, this indicates that the Lord is Jesus. And this makes sense. It's being passed on through the memory of the twelve apostles. Now in chapter 6 and verse 2, we can see something interesting. It says, for if you can bear the entire yoke of the Lord, you will be perfect. But if you cannot, do as much as you can. Chapter 6, verse 2. I like the kind of common sense reality of this writer. He's like, if you can bear the entire yoke, the entire teaching of the Lord Jesus, you're going to be perfect. But if you can't, do the best that you can. Now, what's interesting here is that he's actually drawing upon this passage in Matthew chapter 11, particularly verses 29 and 30. I'm going to quote that so we can get a sense of the way in which the Didachist is drawing on the teaching of Jesus. So in Matthew 11:29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's Matthew 11, verses 29 through 30. And so the Didachist here is drawing on this particular passage, and he is saying that you should be bearing the entire yoke of the Lord. And if you can't, do as much as you can. And the yoke of the Lord, of course, is the instruction that Jesus offers instruction that Jesus teaches. Now what's interesting here is that in Matthew's account, in Matthew 11:29 through 30, Matthew is actually portraying Jesus in terms of God's wisdom because before the book of Matthew was written, there was a book called the book of Sirach, which was included in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, it is God's personified wisdom who says, Take my yoke upon yourself and learn from me, because I will give you rest. And so what Jesus is doing in Matthew is that Jesus is effectively speaking on behalf of wisdom, because Jesus is wisdom's incarnation. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. So we actually have here in the Didache is a reference to wisdom Christology outside of the New Testament from a very early period. Let's move along. So in chapter 8, verse 2, it talks about fasting and it talks about praying. And so the author says that 
you should not pray like the hypocrites, but as the Lord commanded in his gospel, you should pray as follows. And then what he does is that he gives an extended quotation from the Lord's Prayer, from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 14. And what's interesting is that he regards Jesus here as the Lord. The Lord commanded this in his gospel, namely the gospel that's about him, his good news. But, of course, he's drawing from the gospel of Matthew. He's not drawing from Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. The Didacus is drawing from Matthew quite clearly. And what's interesting about this passage is that the Didache, in the very next verse, teaches that this particular prayer, the Lord's Prayer, should be prayed three times a day. And three times actually is this ongoing recurring theme in the Didache as it involves certain steps of discipleship. We'll see that a little bit later. Now, we already saw in chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, in the giving of thanks to our Father, that Jesus is described both as the child of the Father and he's described as the holy vine of David. And again, that's in chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. And so by describing Jesus the holy vine of David, we can see that there is this ongoing tree imagery involving David and his family tree. Jesus, of course, being a vine of David means that he is an offshoot of David's family tree, meaning Jesus is a descendant of David, a son of David. And of course, since David is a human being, then the offshoots of his tree will also be human beings. This indicates that the Didacus believed that Jesus came after David. He was a biological descendant of David from David's line. And of course, this obviously means that Jesus is a human being. He's a man. He's a member of the human race. He's not an angel. He's not a spirit being. He's not Michael the archangel. He's certainly not Yahweh the God of Israel. He's a descendant of David. He's a man. He's a human being. And of course, we saw multiple times that Jesus is described as the child of the Father. One time, he's described as the child of the Master Almighty. So Jesus himself is not the Master Almighty. He is the Master Almighty's child. Jesus is not the Creator. He is the child of the Creator. Like we saw in chapter 10, verse 2, where believers were to receive knowledge, faith, and immortality from God, but they receive it through Jesus, the child of God. So Jesus is involved in this process. God is using Jesus to bring about his knowledge, faith, and immortality, but Jesus is not the source and the giver. Jesus is the agent. God is the source and giver. And again, in chapter 10, verse 3, believers receive spiritual food and drink and eternal life through God's child, but it comes from God himself. Now, we have an interesting prayer that's offered to Jesus. We already saw that the Didacus is drawing on the Lord's Prayer, which, of course, says that you're to pray to the Father, our Father who is in heaven. 
but this interesting prayer that is drawn from 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, and that is the prayer that calls out to Jesus and says, Maranatha. And Maranatha is an Aramaic phrase that is preserved in its earliest form in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, but it means in Aramaic, Our Lord, come. Our Lord, come. Not the Lord, come, but the Lord of us, come. And that's what it means in Aramaic. So this indicates that these believers, or at least the Didachist, believes that Jesus is our Lord, namely the Lord of believers. And we can see here that he is the recipient of some sort of prayer language. It indicates that Jesus can hear this sort of calling out this petition. And it is, of course, requesting for Jesus to come, namely to come in his second coming. And this is another indicator that the Didachist had access to Paul's letters, or at least some of Paul's letters, certainly 1 Corinthians. Now, it does seem to indicate here that there is a call and a summons for Jesus to come. This is a reference to the second coming. So according to the Didache, the second coming had not yet taken place. Remember that the Didache was written well after A.D. 70. So for most Christians, that doesn't seem to be an issue, but there are some Christians that have come to believe that Jesus returned in 70 A.D. I'm not sure how they make sense of this particular data, but this seems to indicate that a late 1st century, early 2nd century writer was still looking forward to the return of Jesus. Moving on, in chapter 16, verse 1, the last chapter of the document, it says to be watchful for your life. Do not let your lamps be extinguished or your robes be loosed, but be prepared. And you do not know the hour when our Lord is coming. Chapter 16, verse 1. Again, the coming of the Lord is still future at a time in which they do not know. They didn't have some sort of end-time timeline that knew exactly when Jesus was going to return, but the return of Jesus was still in the future, and they were to be ready for this. They were to keep their lamps lit, and their robes were to be tied and ready. They were to be prepared. And a few verses later, in chapter 16, verse 8, it says, The Lord will come with all his holy ones with him, then the world will see the Lord coming on the clouds of the sky. Chapter 16, verse 8. So Jesus coming with his holy ones. This seems to be a reference to Jesus coming with his holy angels. And this coming is still in the future. We have multiple references in the Didache to the hope of the second coming of Jesus as something that has not yet taken place. And this particular passage is drawing on the passage of Matthew 24, which indicates that the coming of Jesus had not taken place in 70 AD. And no author thinks that the Didache was written before 70 AD. It was written after 70 AD. So, who is Jesus? Well, he is the Son of God. He is the Son of the Creator. 
and his teachings are authoritative for this Christian community, obviously, and Jesus is coming again in the future. Let's move to our third point, point number three, the Didache's understanding of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned very often in the Didache, so we're doing the best we can with the evidence that we have. In chapter 4, verse 10, it says that for he, namely God, does not come to call those of high status, but those whom the Spirit has prepared. Chapter 4, verse 10. So what we get from this passage is that the Spirit prepares those who are called by God, and the calling here seems to be the calling that the gospel does, the gospel calls. Particularly, you get this in Pauline theology, and again, we have evidence that the Didache has access to the letters of Paul. So I think that's the best way to kind of explain what's going on here. But it does seem to indicate that the Spirit is something a little bit distinct from what God himself is doing. The Spirit just seems to be this extension of God that actually prepares the lives of people based on what the gospel is doing. Now, we're on much firmer ground in trying to define the Spirit in chapter 11, to where the activity of the Spirit is described in great detail, particularly as it involves testing prophets to see if they are true prophets or whether they are false prophets. Look at this passage. In chapter 11, starting in verse 7, it says, Do not test or condemn a prophet speaking in the Spirit. For every sin will be forgiven, but not this sin. Not everyone who speaks in the Spirit is a prophet, but only one who conducts himself like the Lord. Thus, the false prophet and the prophet will both be known by their conduct. No prophet who orders a meal in the Spirit eats of it. If he does, he is a false prophet. That's chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. And you can see there, there just are a variety of checks and balances or a variety of tests that help to allow the community of faith to discern whether these traveling prophets really are true or whether they're false. And it involves whether someone actually is operating in the Spirit. If there's a prophet that's speaking in the Spirit, they are not to be condemned and they're not to be tested. And if a prophet claims to be in the Spirit and he orders a meal in order to eat it, then he is a false prophet. But if he orders a meal and offers it for someone else, then he is a true prophet. And then we can see that the way in which the believers can identify whether someone who speaks in the Spirit really is a prophet is whether that prophet conducts himself like the Lord Jesus. So Jesus functions as this example for how the prophet is supposed to live and act and speak. And if the prophet imitates Jesus, then it indicates that he is speaking in the Spirit. So the Spirit seems to be this presence and power of God 
that is authenticating whether a prophet really has been sent and has the authority of God, or if it doesn't possess the Spirit, then this prophet is a false prophet. A few verses later in chapter 11, verse 12, it says, Do not listen to anyone who says in the Spirit, Give me money. That's chapter 11, verse 12. Now the passage just goes on and does say that if the person who says in the Spirit give money to someone else, then you can listen to that. But I do think this is quite interesting that a prophet is not going to claim the authority of the Spirit and ask the community for money. So that's pretty much all that the Didache has to say about the Spirit, except for one important passage. And we're going to look at this in our fourth and final point, which is the baptismal formula in the Didache. And I'm ending that, of course, with a question mark. Is there a baptismal formula in the Didache? Well, listen and decide for yourself. So there does seem to be a quote from Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, involving baptism and involving the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me read this passage from the Didache in full, and we can come back and talk about this, because I think when we actually look at the Greek of this, there are some very interesting insights into what this passage was intending to convey. So, in Didache chapter 7, starting in verse 1, it says, But with respect to baptism, baptize as follows. Having said all these things in advance, baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, in running water. But if you do not have running water, baptize in some other water. And if you cannot baptize in cold water, use warm. But if you have neither, pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. That's chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. So, let's start off by pointing out the obvious. Baptism was something that was done in water. This is not a Holy Spirit baptism. This indicates that when Jesus taught baptism and he taught in the Great Commission that his disciples were to go and to make disciples and they were to baptize, this was understood as being baptism in water. And there's a kind of this hierarchy of the sort of water you're supposed to use. You need to use running water and it needs to be cold. And if it can't be cold, then it could be warm. And if you don't have that, then pour water on their head. And this is supposed to be done three times. I mentioned that a lot of the discipleship aspects of the Didache involve the repetition of something three times, whether pray something three times or baptize three times. That's just interesting. Now, in chapter 7, verse 1, where it mentions that they are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, if you take the Greek of this passage and you compare it to the Greek of Matthew 28, verse 19, it is word for word the same. The Didache is quoting Matthew exactly. Now, what's interesting also is that in chapter 7, verse 3, for when the author says that if you have neither cold or warm running water, 
and you're to pour the water on the head three times in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, the Greek is actually slightly different. In what ways is chapter 7, verse 3, in its reference to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved in baptism, different from the reference in chapter 7, verse 1? Well, in chapter 7, verse 3, there are no definite articles. There's no definite article before the word name. There's no definite article before father. No definite article before son. And there's no definite article before Holy Spirit. And what this suggests to me is that the wording of this triadic reference, which is the best way to describe this reference to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the wording was never intended to be formulaic. It was never intended to be a formula because, as we can see here, it was just casually reproduced three sentences away from the original direct quote. So the Didache can describe baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit in two different ways. One with an exact quote from Matthew 28, verse 19, and another one in a far looser way, but it's clear in the context that it still is the sort of baptism that Jesus was talking about. But it's not reproduced exactly word for word. And the fact that it is so casually reproduced indicates that this was never intended to be a specific formula. However, it is clear in this passage that we have a direct quote from Matthew 28, verse 19. And we do possess several manuscripts of the Didache. We have a particular codex. I'm going to try to not butcher this particular name. It is Codex Herosolimitanus. It's also uh, preserved in the Apostolic Constitutions, the Didache. And we also have a Gregorian copy of the Didache. And we look at these different manuscripts of this document. There is absolutely no indication that the passage involving baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was added to the Didache later. It's not missing from this particular location, which we call chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, in any of these manuscripts of the Didache that we possess. And since the Didache was directly dependent upon the Gospel of Matthew, this proves in my opinion, that this triadic reference to water baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was original to the Gospel of Matthew. So to my listeners, I would say that instead of trying to argue away the existence of the triadic passage in Matthew 28, 19, because people have taken it and abused it, we should accept it as legitimate scripture, but we should seek to interpret it in light of Matthew's understanding of who God is, who the Son of God is, and what the Holy Spirit is. Let's not throw out the baptismal formula. In other words, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Pun intended. So in sum, 
what can we say about the Didache and what it says about God, Jesus, and the Spirit? Well, we can effectively answer our original question, is the Didache Trinitarian, with a resounding no. The Didache is not Trinitarian. Instead, the Didache teaches that the Father is God, and he's the only one who is God. The Father is the only one who is the creator and the maker of all things. The Father is the Almighty One. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Son of this Creator. But Jesus never called the Creator, and Jesus, of course, has never called God. In fact, Jesus is the descendant of David. He is the promised Lord who is coming again to consummate the kingdom. What about the Spirit? The Spirit is not a person. It's not a conscious person. It's not a self, a masculine self, a he. Rather, the Spirit is a thing. It is the power and the presence of God that influences believers who are called with the gospel. The Spirit influences true prophetic figures. Believers, when they pray, they pray to the Father, but also they can call out to Jesus with the Aramaic phrase, Maranatha. Jesus, however, is not the recipient of thanksgiving. Only the Father is the recipient of thanksgiving. And even the Spirit is never the recipient of any sort of prayer, nor is it the recipient of thanksgiving. So in short, the Didachist, that is the author of the Didache, is firmly a biblical Unitarian. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we explore how the Gospel of John draws upon Deuteronomy 18 in order to portray Jesus as the prophet like Moses. Please look forward to our next episode. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support the podcast absolutely for free by subscribing on YouTube or iTunes, by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends, and by giving us an honest review on iTunes. If you'd like to offer a financial donation, check out the episode description for a PayPal link or consider placing a membership on the YouTube channel. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.